Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Good afternoon to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio, up here on BTR. Oh, God, I've got, I even had to start the show, Curtis. <laughs> Without the most is today, the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And we're here live on Blog Talk Radio, uh, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News. Oh, good Lord. Just go to the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-sense.com. Oh, man. Could I screw up a wet dream today? <laughs> hey, oh, it's man. The working week, that is. Oh, jeez. Oh, oh, it's It's been the, the long weekend just threw me for a loop, and I've had the house to myself for half the morning. So it's been such pleasure to have peace and quiet in the house. And, of course, you know, I'm twiddling my thumbs waiting for the show to start. So, of course, I forget even how to start the show off, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We've got a great show lined up today. Um, we've got two great guests. We've got Bruce Nathan who is running for governor in the great state of Florida, in your state there, Curtis. He'll be on the first yeah. day of the show. And we have Ron McDonald, who, MacDonald, if I can get his name correct. Uh, he'll be with us on the second half. He's a photographer that wrote a book last year called The Ar- Arlington Anthology. And since this is the day after uh, Memorial Day, I thought it was most appropriate to have him on here because he's starting a new anthology, a follow-up on his first book. So he's got new stories to tell. Uh, it's amazing, uh, the men and women, yeah. what they have done for this country. Uh, so great show today. Yeah, I like the fact that we do celebrate our fallen heroes. Uh, for me, it was a pretty somber weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Um Sunday, I spoke at a memorial service and I played taps on my um, trumpet after that. And yesterday, I marched in the parade with my post, my American Legion post. And, uh, so it was great to be out there and, and like I said, celebrating those who um, gave the ultimate, you know, sacrifice. And even though the crowds could be much larger, you know, I'm hopeful that um, in time they will, you know, come out like they do for Christmas parades. <laughs> Absolutely. And today's dedication is going to be a little bit different. Today's dedication is going to be in honor of Memorial Day and the men and women who served and sacrificed. 
It is going out to all of these brave men and women out there. And the dedication is not my own. It is actually by a former Navy SEAL, Jocko Wilink. And he put this together on his podcast. So I cannot say this any better than he does. So let me bring this forward. And here is the dedication. Remember me. I am the fallen soldier, sailor, airman, and marine. I am the one that held the line. Sometimes I volunteered. Sometimes I went because I was told to go. But when the nation called, I answered. In order to serve, I left behind the family, friends, and freedom that so many take for granted. Over time, I used different weapons, a sword, a musket, a bayonet, a rifle, a machine gun. Often, I marched into battle on foot, countless miles, across whole continents. I had little water and even less food, but it did not matter. We had a job to do. Other times, I rode to battle on horseback or in wagons, sometimes on trains, later in tanks or jeeps or Humvees. In early wars, my ships were made of wood and powered by the wind. Later, they were made of steel and powered by diesel fuel or the atom. I even took to the air and mastered the sky in planes, helicopters, and jets. The machines of war evolved and changed with the times. But remember that it was always me, the warrior, that had to fight our nation's enemies. I fought at Lexington and Concord as our nation was born. I crossed the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776. Freedom was on our side. I defended the Chattahoochee River in the War of 1812. I would stand again. In the Civil War, I fought with my brothers and against my brothers at Gettysburg and Shiloh and Bull Run. I learned that we must never again divide. In World War I, I marched on the Marne and held the line at Bella Wood. The war to end all wars, they called it. I just called it hell. In World War II, I fought everywhere. From the beaches of Normandy and the Battle of the Bulge to the sands of Iwo Jima and the hell of Guadalcanal. I stood against tyranny and kept darkness from consuming the world. In Korea... I landed at Incheon and broke out of the Chosen Reservoir. They called it the Forgotten War. But I never forgot. In Vietnam, I went and I fought. In the Mekong Delta and at Ai Drang and Khe San and Hamburger Hill. Some say my country wavered. 
but I did not waver. Ever. In the recent past, I fought in Grenada, Panama, Somalia, and other desperate places around the globe. And finally, I have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Baghdad and Fallujah and Ramadi, in Kunar and Helmand and Kandahar. As technology advanced, I used night vision goggles and global positioning systems and drones and lasers and thermal optics. But it was still me, a human being, that did the work. It was me that patrolled up the mountains or across the desert or through the streets. It was me that suffered in the merciless heat and the bitter cold. It was me that went out night after night to confront our nation's enemies and confront evil face to face. It was me. Remember me. I was a warrior. But also remember that I was not only a warrior. I was not just a soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. Remember also that I was a son, a brother, a father. I was a daughter, a sister, a mother. I was a person. Like you, a real person with hopes and dreams for the future. I wanted to have children. I wanted to watch my children grow up. I wanted to see my son score a touchdown or shoot the winning basket. I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle. I wanted to kiss my wife again. I wanted to grow old with her and be there to hold her hand when life grew hard. When I told her I would be with her until the end, I meant it. When I told my children I would always be there for them, I meant it. But I gave all that away. All of it. On that distant battlefield, on some godforsaken patch of dirt amongst the fear and the fire and the bullets. Or in the sky above enemy territory filled with fatal flak. Or in the unforgiving sea where we fought against the enemy and against the depths of the abyss. There. In those awful places, I held the line. I did not waver, and I did not hesitate. I, the soldier, sailor, airman, or marine, I stood my ground and sacrificed my life. My future, my hopes, my dreams, I sacrificed everything. For you.
this Memorial Day, remember me. The fallen warrior. And remember me, not for my sake, but for yours. Remember what I sacrificed so you can truly appreciate the incredible treasures you have. Life. Liberty. The pursuit of happiness. You have the joys of life, the joys that I gave up so that you can relish in them. The cool breeze in the air, the gentle spring grass on your bare feet, the warm summer sun on your face, family, friends, and freedom. Never forget where it all came from. It came from sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. Don't waste it. Don't waste any of your time on this earth. Live a life that honors the sacrifice of our fallen heroes. Remember them always and make every day Memorial Day. Today's show is dedicated to all these brave men and women that have served this nation from its birth through today and into its future. I also dedicate the show to all the brave men and women on the front line, those first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. We dedicate them to them with this song by Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one. Born in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and
it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me, but I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? If so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? Every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom! You just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my webpage. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. They offer four tiers for affiliates, from one case to 16 cases. 
I bought four cases to start, and boy, am I hooked on the water. Simply go to my webpage, click on the Earth Water link on the page, and join Team Earth Water. Go to Southern Sense and become a member of my site, and you'll also be entered to win the latest book offer if you become a member of my site. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Check it out. I know you'll be pleased. All right, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains, Daily News, Kinetic Hi-Fi, The Fix FM, out of Charleston, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, oh, up on YouTube, Facebook, video. Uh, just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And Curtis, we've got our latest victim up in the bullpen. Shall we bring him back on the air? Shall we welcome back him? Go ahead. Follow me. All right. Hopefully this will be the future governor of the great state of Florida, Bruce Nathan. Good afternoon, Bruce, and welcome back to the show. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for having me back. Are you guys you guys are in Charleston? I'm I'm in South Carolina and Curtis is down there South- in your state, Florida. Oh, okay. You know, I was just in Charleston. I just met uh, your lieutenant governor, Kevin Bryant. So very nice guy. Yes. Um, yeah, guys. Yes, I know him. I know Kevin. Yes, I know yeah. Kevin. So, I know uh, so you... a lot of the candidates running for governor. I'll bet you do. So yep. it's a... <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys got a few issues in your state. So uh, just like my state, so it's a it's a it's a lot of problems that have to be straightened out. And then I and I do this because I'm a I'm a 22 year medical practitioner uh, who's always put uh, people or my patients. Uh, before myself, and uh, that's one of the reasons why, and you go into Memorial Day, well, I joined the military in response to 9-11, so I'm a a nine-year military veteran, honorably discharged captain, uh, who's who's working towards the world of anti-establishment, anti-corruption, anti-waste, pro-life, obviously, pro-Trump, obviously, and and I'm a, a faithful husband, father of six children. So I've got uh, I've got a lot wow. on my plate. Um, so I uh, and I'm here. I've got uh, only 15 minutes before I get to my next patient. So I've got a very tight tight schedule these days. So but um but I'm here because it's so important to get the regular guy into office. If we keep getting those politicians in, uh, nothing will ever change. I'm a very boots on the ground kind of guy. I've got a, a 770 plan, which is a 770 pledge, which makes sure that I will do seven specific things in the first uh, 70 days um, of my candidacy. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's just that important to make sure that you keep your promise to the people as our president has. He has kept virtually every promise that he said on the campaign trail. He has done what he said he was going to do. And that's what we need to do. And, and I uh, wholeheartedly agree with that type of approach. So that's what I will do um, as I become governor. So, so, you know, your um, webpage happens to be your name with 2018 directly behind a Bruce Nathan 2018. And people can look at this uh, 770 pledge on that webpage, and I've got it printed out in front of me. And, you know, I like it. I like it a lot, especially since you're looking at education as well as uh, law and order, because uh, you have certain cities in Florida that attempted to become sanctuary cities. Same thing here in, in South Carolina. They attempted to become sanctuary cities. And time and time again shows you have a higher crime rate 
in those areas. Oh yeah, and it's a shame because just a, just a, where I live here, just twenty minutes south or so, there's a, a, a Jupiter, Florida. We don't know how many. It's somewhere between two and four thousand uh, people who are um, you know illegal refugees that are here, and uh, they kind of keep them in hiding. Palm Beach County happens to be huge uh, blue county, uh, very leftist, very uh, they 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 they're they're unfortunately hiding in there. You know, Palm Beach County is the one with Sheriff Israel in there, which needs to resign. He's the one that really uh, had the, the Parkland shooting could have been avoided uh, if someone like him was not the sheriff. So it's it's a it's a county that's that's just corrupt beyond belief, and it's holding these guys, these people, these family, whoever they are in there, and they're not supposed to be there. So yes, I will. Uh, one of my big uh, campaign pledges and promises is that we will close down the sanctuary cities immediately. And we are sending them back up to Washington where they can then uh, fill out a green card if they'd like. But as President Trump says uh, on his, uh, in, uh, in his State of the Union speech, he said, uh, let's have the refugees stay closer to their homeland. So we'll send them back closer to their homeland because that's where they need to be. So that's one of my big Well, things. you also have unique perspective as a healthcare provider because you are a physical therapist and I know a lot about physical therapy since I've been in it since like 1989. Uh, It it is frustrating for those of us that have insurance, have also Medicare, and yet you have injuries that you're going to be dealing with for possibly the rest of your life, but yet they limit the number of sessions or the number of times a person can go to physical therapy. So for example, if you have something, for example, a shoulder replacement, and then later on in the year, you need a hip replacement. You are prohibited from going back to physical therapy for the second surgery. This is one of the craziest things because we pay into Medicare. We pay for that insurance throughout all of our, our working lives, and then we continue to pay as we are using the benefits. So it's not something that we're getting for free. So why can't we I, – I don't understand that. And you're in the position where you can see this happening in your practice every single day. Every day. So, well, you see, but, and I saw that happening, and that's why I've got a, uh, uh, I don't know when the last time I was on the show was. It was probably back, it was probably at the end of 2017 or somewhere in there. But right now, at this point, um, as of the end of 2017, uh, 2017, I um, have a now patent pending uh, healthcare system. It's called We the People Healthcare. And what happens with this system, it's a direct system for patients and doctors. So the patient is able to call the doc, the nurse practitioner, the physician's assistant directly through a, uh, we call it, it's called telemed in the words that people understand now, but we're calling it team med because we're going to trademark it. And um, so with our team med system, which will be encrypted, people will be able to get a hold of their their practitioner 24-7, and they will not have to, possibly not have to go to their office I'd rather see uh, people going more into people's homes because the more people go out into offices, into hospitals, that's more of a risk of infection, more of a risk of catching something that they wouldn't have normally caught in the first place. So with this team med system and this telemed system, it will drastically reduce all the costs. With the, uh, We will get rid of Medicare, we'll get rid of Medicaid and get rid of insurance companies. They all get taken away because... They're the ones driving the 65 to 70 percent of money out of patients' pockets and out of doctors' pockets. So it's an insane system that's not working at all. And this system that I've 
uh, invented is a capitalistic type system. That's one leg of it where I just told you was the patients and the doctors. But the other leg or the other side of it is manufacturing and farming. The manufacturing and farming side will be uh, uh, wholly in Florida alone, and then we will not outsource at all. So it will help to boost the economy. And one of the major things that we will be uh, um, farming here is the next, what's what's known as by all people who are investors, is the next trillion-dollar industry, which is called hemp. Hemp is not marijuana, which most people believe. It's the male plant that's extremely strong. We've had hemp for rope forever for our lives, but it does a lot more than that. We make clothes out of it. We can make it. It's now used as a filament for 3D printers. So that will be one of our things that we develop here in the state of Florida that will help to uh, bring in money as a profit side of my We the People healthcare system to help to pay for the other side of the patient care. So uh, it's not going to be free system at all. People, uh, patients pay for it. The the, the cost is only $110 per person per month with a $500 deductible. Once that deductible is met, then it, uh, it's, everything else is, uh, is paid for. Uh, if you have more than three people in the home, then it's $285 a month with $750 a month or, or, or year for deductible. So um, very inexpensive. Every single person, 100% of the people I've talked to, that they could afford that and they could, we could make that work. So that's, that's what has to happen. And then as a physical therapist, you know, I, I am tired of, of, of limiting the amount of visits that patients get. Um, I was, just came from a patient just now who had a, a below-knee amputation. She can barely walk. They wanted to end her on Friday. They wanted to say she, she can't have any more visits, and she can't get out of her house. Uh, and she broke her other side of her, her foot. So how am I supposed to say that you can't have it? Now, I have to fight for her to get more visits so that she can have more physical therapy and occupational therapy where that wouldn't happen in my system. There wouldn't be no fight. And so that's, that's what has to happen. It's a caring person that needs to be up on the top and as a governor to make sure that he can look down on the 20.5 million people and say, these are all people that now are part of this government. We all own the government. We all own it. So we're all part of it. And so that's what we have to be. That's, our, our government was not put there. Our constitution was not built to make it so that um, we, we are the, um, the rulers. It was built so that we enact our laws and make it so that the people have to follow the laws. And that's the reason the constitution is there. Uh, you know, aside from that, that's, it's, it's, the government is supposed to be for the people, we the people. That's why I wrote the health care system like I did, we the people health care. So. I love it. I love the idea of you going into the home because a lot of times doctors don't understand what's going in the home within the family. So once you walk through the door, you get a better feel of what's going on with the patient. Absolutely. I've been to thousands of homes. I mean, really, that's no exaggeration. I've been doing this 22 years. So I've been in thousands of different homes. A lot of times I would just do evaluations uh, and other uh, physical therapy assistants would pick up the case. So I would see new patients every day, seven, eight, nine patients new ones every day but it's just it's, it's extremely important that you know what's going on in the house because that's the that's the section that lets you know okay well this, this isn't working well here well this person doesn't have any family members well there's nobody to take care of this person well and then you have to know about what's going on there so you can see it and have eyes on and that's the way it works and and understand i started off my practice or i started off doing this as, as a pediatric physical therapist so so for me 
And that's what that was always my love because I've got so many children, and and I've got the idea that children have to come first in our society. They've never come first in our society. We we politicians push them off, and don't, because they can't vote, they say, okay, well we don't need the kids, uh, you know, because they can't vote for us. So kids are top top uh, priority in my campaign all the time. Well, I also saw you have a platform for veterans, too, and I was surprised to know that Florida has one of the highest suicide rates for veterans. That's uh, that's un- unforgivable. Yes, I've got uh, one person on my team. He is the um, uh, our top behavioral specialist uh, in the state of Florida, um, and he's going to be uh, enacting um, part of our, our, our um, platform is putting together a, a – specific rehab for veterans um, the, the veterans um, and this is def- this is something that's never been done in the history of America before ever I've never felt the need to live in a mansion um, the governor's mansion will be converted to what we're going to call the military mansion and the military mansion is going to be where there's going to be veterans that are going to come through there in a rehab type fashion and be there for a certain amount of weeks and then we will move them out into a career path and into a specific living situation that is uh, the way they want to make it happen, and we will watch over them for the first year to make sure that everything is going along according to path. And it doesn't matter if it's part of our – part of my We the People Health System gives veterans 24-7 access. They don't have to pay a deductible. They don't have to have a payment. They are fully um, enacted in our system to make it so it's 24-7 um, access and to any doctor, anytime, anywhere, for any reason. That's it, and uh, and that's what has to happen for the veterans. But but to make sure that that's going to happen correctly, this is the type of plan. This is the kind of person that I am. Give give the mansion to them. They sacrificed. They served our country. Let them have it because you know wh- you know we are people that are here. We're in this country. We're free because. They are did what they are supposed to do, and I heard I heard a couple of minutes of what your um, um uh, of the uh, uh, memorial prayer. I guess it was kind of a memorial prayer, Memorial Day prayer, and so it was a uh, very nice, very touching, and that, and I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. So, uh, and and I'm not just a person that talks to talk. I walk the walk. So I'm making sure that our veterans are going to get full care. I mean, and we're going to look after them. I'm going to have a special team. That's going to make sure that they are taken care of. I don't. The VA, they've fallen flat on their face over and over and over, and we are so tired of uh, the uh, veterans being second-class citizens. Just had it. So I don't care what the federal government does. I know that as a state, as by our Tenth Amendment, our Constitution, I am going to be running a whole new system for the veterans here in the state of Florida. God bless you for the hard work you do. Curtis, Curtis, go ahead. You said that once you would become governor, you would get rid of all the sanctuary cities. Is this something that you can do on your own? I mean, would you have executive um, um, authority to do that, or do you need to go to the state legislature? Well, they never came in. It was never uh, approved through the state legislature to come in. They all came in under the cover of the night. I mean, this was a whole Obama thing that was made up with, uh, I guess, Rick Scott was involved somewhere along the line, but uh, where he said he was not going to take the refugees in. Well, you know, 
I saw the pathway that they actually came in on. I mean, the, the how how a map, a drawing of how they came in, where they came from. So um, this was not supposed to happen. So it was never approved. So yes, as governor, I can absolutely close it down, shut it down, and send them out. Um, will there be a lot of uh, pushback? Of course, there's always oh, yeah. pushback. It, Anytime we're going to do anything that's the right thing to do in a conservative sense, there's always going to be pushback. But, you know, I'm, I'm, look, I'm the general in the war of corruption. So if there's corruption in my state, which that's part of our corruption, I am going to push back on it, and, and nothing is going to stop me. I'm, I've, I've got, God's got his hand on my shoulder, and, I, and I'm forward. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to launch. That's it. I'm, I, I'm hyped. I mean, the last time we had in the show, you were exciting guests, but this is even more exciting because this you tried running in 2016 for another office. Now you're going for the governor this year in 2018. So your name is out there. People have your name recognition. And uh, it's an exciting campaign. It, it is very exciting. We, we've got so many things going on. Tomorrow I've got a debate. Um, we actually asked, the, uh, we asked Ron DeSantis and Adam Putnam, who are the other two Republicans, that are there to be in part of this debate, they would not come because they do not feel that um, uh, the other one that's uh, on the debate with me or against me is Bob White uh, because we're not the bigger guys. We're not the high polling guys. So they didn't they decided not to come to this debate. This is um, this debate's actually being put on by um, the Seminole County teenage Republicans. And so uh, it's, a, it's a millennial type of, uh, of club as well as a few other clubs that are involved. Um, a lot of people are going to be very involved. It's going to be very crowded. Uh, but it's, it's something that's very important to make sure that people understand there's not just the two guys that are out there that are, that are swampers or swamp rats. There's other people that are there that are trying to become uh, the governor to make it so that we, we truly want to make, it the better, make the state better. So um, my, my biggest difference between uh, Bob White and myself is I have the solutions. I, I, I put out solutions. I'm a medical practitioner. I've been, I, and I've got everything going. I got a global team. Um, he doesn't really have much. So uh, it's, uh, but it's, so it's an easy, it's an easy debate. It's a good practice debate. There's a uh, Fox News debate <laughs> that's on the 28th of uh, June, and that'll be uh, qualified Republican candidates. It's at 6:30 on Fox, on, on Fox, and it's a nationally televised. Uh, it's from 6:30, 7:30, and then you go into the spin rooms after that. So, uh, and we'll see. You know. Fox is going to be tricky on that. They're going to, we'll see if they let all of the candidates come in that have qualified or if they're going to go by polling. Um, polling is tough because you've got to pay for polling. So it takes time to do that. Wow. Oh. It's, it's, this, so. is, this season, this electoral season is exciting because we have the gubernatorial race here also in South Carolina. Yes. And it's five yeah. different candidates running. We've had our first debate. There's going to be a second debate. Uh, that's on um, a public broadcast station, not on Fox. But I'm, I'm telling people they've got to go to your website and give you a boost with your campaign, which is Bruce Nathan 2018. I understand you said you have a patient that you're going to be seeing. Are we cutting into your time, or do you need to run, or can you stay yeah, a few I got, moments uh, yeah, more? Yeah, I'm at, the end, I'm at the end of my zone, so I, I do have to go. But I do a Facebook Live every night at 7 o'clock. If they go to uh, on Facebook, uh, dot com and then go uh, backslash um, Bruce Nathan twenty eighteen. Um, they'll come up onto my page and every well if I don't have something else going on. So I'm on tonight. I won't be on tomorrow. I'll be on Thursday, Friday as well. Seven o'clock, seven o'clock Eastern time. Um, and I do a quite I do an Ask Bruce live, a question and answer period. So I'm on for a half hour 
and I talk about things of the day. I, talk, I answer questions. Sometimes I get so much into talking, I don't answer all the questions. But it, it's, there's a lot of concerns, obviously, in Florida, just like South Carolina. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, something where people can access me. That's the most important thing, uh, really, about this whole race. As I am the most accessible uh, gubernatorial candidate that's out there, and probably throughout the nation, because um, as, as Curtis knows, he's seen me. He can get a hold of me anytime. People message me. They personal message, you know, a uh, uh, private message on, on um, and and I've got my phone number out there, so people can get a hold of me. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be a government that's by the people for the people, and that's what I'm here for. So and I'll be like that 100% of the time, and so that's why. And I still work, and you know, and there's a few candidates that are actually still working out there. I keep going to see my patients because that's important. So that's what we're supposed to do. So. But, um, well, God, any, God any, bless any, you for any, the hard last, last work question? that you do, Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> Curtis, last question, because you're from Florida. Well, I was just saying, Curtis, appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you coming on the show, um, spending some time, and we'll get you back on in the future, near future. All right, that's great, Curtis. You guys, you guys are great, and I, I love, I love your message. I love everything you stand for. It's hearing from the beginning of the show and on. It's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a nice message you're putting out there, and I, and I truly hope it continues. So uh, you two are really great people. So thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank All right. you, Bruce. Take care, guys. Right. Thank Take you. Care. Good luck with the campaign. Okay. Thank All you right. so much. Bye. Second, Nathan, 2018. That's his website. It's uh, up on the show page. Uh, just click on the link to go to his, uh, his webpage and give the guy a boost in the campaign. We need, we need good, solid conservatives like this guy. And Curtis, here, here's some uplifting right. news. This is some really good uplifting news. This was from MSN.com, believe it or not. Um, there was a softball game going on in Fresno, California. And it was a uh, championship, a championship game. Hundreds of fans attending a game between Clovis High and Buchanan at Fresno State University, Margie Wright Diamond, uh, this past Friday. And as they're getting ready to go for the game, their announcement goes over the loudspeaker that there will be no national anthem. Who starts a ball game without the national anthem? Really? Come on. Well, the fans started booing. They started booing. And then just all at once, they all started to sing the national anthem a cappella. What, yeah. I listened to it's the video, amazing. and you can, someone was singing off-key, but hey, listen, they gave it the try. They turned around and said, we don't believe in your, liberal, your liberalism. This is the United States of America. Baseball is our game. We invented it. We're singing the national anthem. And to heck with you thinking it's politically correct. We're going to be politically incorrect, and we're singing the national anthem. God bless them. God bless these people that, in Fresno, California. That gives me hope for California. I mean, I'm seeing things like this. I'm seeing the rebellion against sanctuary cities in California. So who knows, you know, we'll be able to flip California in about four or five years. Well, Especially California may not off. be as, as blue as people think. California may not be as blue as people think. I just want to welcome everyone that's up in the chat room that's uh, showing up in uh, over on Facebook and got a new viewer over on YouTube. Welcome aboard. I uh, just want to say hi to everyone because I see people popping in and out. But here's another good piece of item. <laughs> not good. 
Oh, geez. Uh, not necessarily good, but uh, there are these people that just, they'll find anything and everything possibly wrong with President Trump. You know, when we criticized Obama, and yes, I openly criticized him while he was in office, but I had legitimate reasons for criticizing him. Well, it turns out that President Trump likes to write to people. You know, he takes the time out to write. So he wrote to this one woman, uh, Yvonne Mason, uh, a former high school English teacher who required, re- retired last week, last year. Sorry, get that correct. Well, he sends her a, a letter, and she then turns around and starts to correct his paper as if he's a school child. Oh, crying out loud. This is the president of the United States. So she corrects the paper, the, not the paper, his letter, and then sends it back. She takes a picture of it, puts it up on Facebook. So now here she is, an English teacher. Now, I know my grammar is not the best. And we've had presidents that have had worse grammar than President Trump has. Come on. We've had some that were absolute reprobates in office, Bill Clinton. Uh, but she, she corrects his letter. And she, at the top left corner, she has, have y'all tried grammar style check? Y'all? should have been have you tried not have y'all so teacher already <laughs> off to a bad start then she criticizes him as federal is capitalized only when used as part of a proper noun okay that's fine i understand that is correct and then towards the bottom she has omg this is wrong now if you're correcting someone's grammar omg first off there's no punctuation between the O, the M, and the G. It should be O period, M period, G period, with a space between each letter. Because you're, you're using the letters for in place of words. It should be O period space, M period space, G period space. But she's got O-M-G. That itself is not proper grammar. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it should be, oh, my God, this is wrong. So here's the news yeah, teacher correcting the president's labor uh, letter. Even she can't get the grammar correct. <laughs> it's just another liberal who has an opportunity to embarrass or attempt to embarrass the president. You know, that's what they're all about—to make this guy look dumb, uneducated, and 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 really, you know, someone who doesn't know what he's doing and shouldn't be president. That's their whole theme, and I think that's their theme to take into the, you know, midterm. So that's what they're going to go with. They're going to lose badly. <laughs> you know, nothing this man does can they get correct. You know, nothing. Nothing is good enough for them. Oh, this is just too crazy. But we got our next guest in up on the line, and because our first guest had to leave early, we're going to bring him in early ourselves. Let me just get my pages here, just get Wait. some of these things closed out. Ah, all right. So let's welcome aboard the funny farm here, Ron McDonald. Good afternoon, Ron, and welcome back. Hey, how you doing? All right. Our last guest had to leave early, so it gives you all the more time with this. All the better for us, I just, right? I, I called in at the right time. Absolutely perfect timing. Oh, man. Uh, people will remember you were on our show, I think it was back in November, if I'm correct, around Veterans Day, and you had a new book out at that time, uh, The Arlington Anthology. 
And since then, you've been finding uh, new stories out there. Well, I, was, uh, I wanted to relate some new stories that, that, that uh, I do have in the book, and I thought you guys would be uh, interested in hearing them. Oh, man. Um, I was looking at your email that you sent me, and uh, good Lord, I looked up these people, the names of people, and a lot of the stories sounded familiar. And were these in your original book, or are these the new stories you wanted to put in, like, part two? No, this is, this is actually from the original book. I am working on a, a second book at the time. Um, the original has about 116 people in it, and this one so far I have about 76, 77 in it. So, um, wow. But that one, yeah. So it's it's a long process. I mean, the first one took me eight years to do, and hopefully it's not gonna. I mean, it's not gonna take me that long to do the second one. But um, it's the research that you know that takes a while because everything that I, I get, the information I get to be able to write about each one of these people. It comes from either military archives, um, it comes from eyewitness accounts, it comes from diaries, it comes from Medal of Honor sites, uh, Arlington sites. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it comes from a lot of different places, and so it's it's a conglomeration of finding that information out. Yeah, I was watching the ceremony with President Trump yesterday, and um, there were certain points where I was moved to tears uh, when he told the story of that little boy's father, the Marine yeah. that was killed in action, the little boy uh, was wearing a replica Marine uniform to the T. And he asked President Trump, would you like to meet my dad? And Trump said, sure. And the kid takes him by the hand and walks him over to his father's grave. And Trump stood there in prayer with the little boy holding his hand. I mean, that just had me completely in tears. I, you know, he's uh, he's an unusual guy. I really think he is. You know, it's been a long time since we had a president like that. That that, uh, you know, I just uh, that's just my own personal opinion. People can take it or come with it or whatever. But um, you know, I mean, that portion of the park where the little boy took him is a very raw nerve for a lot of people because that section in the park, which I write about in the next book, is actually where all the Afghanistan and Iraqi guys are being buried. And I say it's a raw nerve in the sense that you have people that, that leave things to people. It could be anything from a beer bottle to uh, to a cigar or to a teddy bear or whatever they want to leave. Um, and you have people that will, will have picnics, and they'll, they'll talk to them, and they'll oftentimes lay on the grave. So, you know, it, it's that kind of a sensitive part of Arlington, which is nothing like any of the rest of the park. Well, cemeteries originally were parks where people did go and picnic yeah. originally. Um, yeah. Now, we don't do that. that we don't go to visit anymore. Well, there are people that do. Uh, you can go to any any kind of, you know, cemetery, uh, and, and they do. I always like to say, you know, we, we, we die three times in life. We die at our death, we die at our funeral, and we die when the last person forgets about us, the passes. Wow. Um, and that's one reason why I kind of, I, the book, I don't want people to forget about what people have done for us, to be able to have the freedoms we have today and the rights we have today and the sacrifices that they made for us. Uh, you know, the stories I'm going to tell you today range from nurses to 
you know, uh, to POWs, to to a love story, actually, to um, stories that you may not even have heard of or even know of. I think the last time we talked, and uh, I had mentioned that, you know, there's buried on that property about 1,500 African-American Union soldiers, and of those, four of those are Medal of Honor recipients that received that Medal of Honor uh, nine years after the Civil War. And I'm going to tell you a story about one of those guys today. Well, let's start with the story of Arlington itself, because sure. that was the Lee family property, right? Well, originally, and this is, this is actually a great story, I found this out, but originally the, the property, and this is way before anything, uh, was owned by an old sea captain. And he owned about 900 acres of that property. And he wanted to go back to sea. He didn't want to be a landlubber anymore, and he wanted to go back to sea. So he sold the property for two barrels of pork, <laughs> which I which find kind of actually you – know, two barrels of pork. They used to store – what they do is they used to store <laughs> pork in, in barrels for when they went to sea. Uh, so I found that, you know, amazing. I, didn't, I had no idea about that when I found that out. Um, originally what happened is, you know, George Washington had surveyed that property as a young man and in doing so he fell in love with the place and, um, he had married, uh, Martha Washington and Martha was the grandmother of, uh, John Parks Custis children. And John Parks Custis was uh, Washington's aide de camp and he passed away at Yorktown to, uh, camp fever. Uh, and so Washington, um, you know, adopted – he actually had four children, but he, Washington adopted the two children that were the youngest. One was eight, and the other one was uh, six, I believe, and that was the boy. And he adopted them, and they primarily were raised and grew up at, at uh, Mount Vernon. And then uh, when he became president, they, they were moved to Philadelphia and uh, – or New York, excuse me, and uh, – they lived there until later on. And then when Washington passed, the property uh, went to John Parks Custis Jr., the, the boy. And uh, he uh, is the one who actually built the home that you see now there on Arlington, that old home. And uh, he had a wife and a daughter, and the daughter's name was Mary Custis. And Mary Custis is the one who married Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee at the time was a, a West Pointer, and uh, very well known. And uh, anyway, he, he ended up marrying uh, uh, Mary Custis. And when uh, Mr. Custis passed away, he is actually buried on that property. Uh, uh, she uh, took possession of the home. And so uh, when the Civil War broke out, what ended up happening is that uh, Lee went to uh, Richmond with his wife and left the, the, the place basically abandoned in a sense. And uh, the uh, federal government wanted Lee to come back to pay the property tax during the Civil War. And obviously he wasn't going to be doing that. (laughs) And so the government ended up seizing the property. But they seized that property illegally. Uh, General Migas, who was actually uh, grew up with him and was a good friend of his at West Point, was the quartermaster. and, And they were actually very good friends. But what ended up happening is that uh, he felt that Lee was a traitor and that he had deserted uh, the Union. 
And he actually lost his son during the Civil War and blamed me for it. And it came to a point when the old soldier cemetery was still there, and they had to find some place to put the men. And Lincoln was standing there with General Migas as he had five bodies laying in front of him. And Lincoln was very hesitant about burying the people, or burying the gentleman there on the property, because he wouldn't have to be able to come back to his own home after the war. But he caved in to General Migas, and General Migas buried the first 1,500 soldiers, unknown soldiers from the Rappahannock, the wilderness, and from Bull Run in the garden so that Lee could never come home. After the Civil War, um, the Custis family actually took the federal government to court because of seizing the property, and they won. And in turn, what they did is they turned around and sold the property to the American government and they paid the Custis family $150,000 for it. And that's how wow. it became Arlington. And that, it's actually, actually really that was the property was going to be called Mount Washington. Uh, but it, they called it Arlington after the Custis family home. Wow. I know. It's amazing. It, it, it's amazing. <laughs> $150,000. You think about that in today's money. That'd be into the millions. In today's oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, tremendous the millions back in there right the now, after the Civil War. Oh, sure. Wow. Wow. You know, what I found also, what goes back to the Civil War, was the history about taps. You know, and uh, we go to funerals for military or for, you know, first responders, and taps is played. But they didn't realize that it's originated with the Civil War, first on the Union side, and then adopted on the Confederate side around the same time, right? Yeah. Well, there's actually two stories about TAPS. Um, I personally like the more romantic story of TAPS, uh, whereas uh, the other story is uh, that a bugler actually uh, created TAPS. But I like the romantic story, and uh, that's the one I actually tell in the book is the more romantic one, I guess because I'm a romantic romanticist at heart. But, um, you know, Ar- <laughs> Arlington... <laughs> Arlington, you know, every day, 25 to 30 men are buried there, and women are buried there in Taps, or are buried there in Arlington, and, and Taps is played for each one of those. And as, as Taps is played across the whole country. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, the thing is, is, a lot of people don't know the story of Taps. Um, Excuse me. Uh, it all began in uh, 1862, uh, this story. And it was when a captain, Robert Elcombe, was uh, with his men near the Harrison Landing in Virginia. Uh, the Confederate Army was on the other side of a narrow strip of land, and a battle had raged that day. And it was dark that night, pitch dark. And during that night, he had heard the moans and groans of a soldier who was mortally wounded on the field. He didn't know whether he was a Union or he didn't know whether he was a Confederate. It didn't matter to him. He just knew that there was a soldier out there and, and decided to, to go out there and risk his life to bring that man back and to get him medical attention of some kind. Well, he crawled out there on his stomach through the gunfire, and, and the captain finally reached that man, and he pulled him back toward his line. But when he finally reached his own lines, he realized that the man was dead, the Confederate soldier. But he also put a lantern up and he saw for his shock that it was his son. Uh, and in that light, and, and the boy he had known had been studying music in the South and he didn't have any idea that he had 
had uh, enlisted into the Confederate Army when the war broke out, and it broke his father's heart. Well, the captain wanted a band to play a, a, a funeral dire for his son, but that was refused by the commanding officer because he was a Confederate. And so the captain chose a bugler and asked him to play a series of notes he had found on a piece of paper in his son's pocket with his uniform. He was granted that wish, and Taps was played for the first time. And today it's played at every soldier's funeral. Yeah, that's the romantic version. Today it is. Yeah. Now, Horace Lorenzo Trim had wrote a set of words to accompany the music. It's just 27 notes. Mm -hmm. And the poem goes as this. The day is done, go on the sun. From the lake, from the hills, from the sky. All is well, safely rest. God is nigh. Fading light dims the sight. And a star gems the sky, gleaming bright. From afar, drawing nigh, falls the night. And praise for our days. Meet the sun, meet the stars, meet the sky. As we go, this we know, God is nigh. Sun has set, shadows come. Time has fled, scouts must go to their beds. Always true to the promise that they made while the light fades from sight. And the stars' gleaming rays softly send. To thy hands we our souls, Lord, commend. That's the story of the text. But there's another story yeah. where it was um, Major General Butterfield was also attributed to it, right? Yes, that's the other story. Mm. So no one really truly knows the true story, but I, I do believe the history books do attribute Butterfield. But your story, like you said, is the more romantic of the two. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I kind of went, I kind of went that side instead of the the actual, you know, the other story. I just uh, I found it more touching because of what happened during the Civil War, you know. Um, yeah, and it's now, it's for all soldiers, you know. It's not just for Union; it was for Confederate soldiers also, you know. Mm. Well, you know, you gave me several different names, and some of them were just so absolutely fascinating. Uh, one of the ones you gave me was for Thomas Gibbons. Now, tell us mm-hmm. about Thomas Gibbons and why you chose him. I, I, you know what, the reason why I chose Thomas Gibbon is simply this, is, you know, every father at some point down with his son, where his son will sit down with his father and talk to him about going away and, and, and leaving. And, and they have a final talk before he leaves. And the story kind of touched my heart because I can, I can see this happen. You see, deep down, Thomas wanted uh, to always be like his father, and he wanted to serve in the Air National Guard. But uh, he also wanted to become a Marine because he thought they were the best. But he ended up joining the Army, and he became a member of the 101st Airborne. You see, when Desert Storm broke out, um, he sat down with his dad. And like many of the young men do today and have done in the past, um, he sat down and talked with his dad before he left off the war. He told his dad, you know, I, I don't know if I, if I don't come back, you know, I, but I want to be buried in Arlington. And his father was silent for a while. And then he reached into his wallet and he pulled out a dollar bill and he tore that dollar bill in half. And he gave half to his son and he kept the other half. And his son said thanks and he 
kept this, uh, his, his father said, he says, you keep this with you, and when you return, you bring it back safely. Well, he did his first tour of duty and came back, and he gave his father that other half of that bill. <coughs> he, uh, he tried desperately to adopt a civilian life. And he was having such a hard problem with it because he didn't fit in. He didn't feel like uh, he just didn't fit in anymore. So after about a year, he reenlisted when he knew that the war was going to be, uh, that the war was going to be and and was to be sent off again. And he sat down with his father again. And this time he asked his father again for that, that other half of that bill. Well, his dad was very hesitant about it, but he did. And they hugged and his son and, and they put the other half of the other bill in his wallet. And this time, his son didn't come home. He came home in a coffin. And his father asked to see his son one more time. And in that moment alone, his father took out the laminated half that he had carried. And he placed it in his son's pocket. And he kept the other half that his son's of uh, his the, the, the items that his son had and had held on to his, his dollar bill. And he said to his son, when the day comes, son, I'll put this other half in my shirt pocket and when we meet again, we'll make it whole again. Wow. On the Arlington... On the Arlington... Yeah, it is. On the Arlington's... Um, Website, uh, it writes in there, says Thomas Gibbons got his heroes send off yesterday with full military honors, replete with the U.S. Army band playing taps and the burial location he requested years ago. U.S. flags were presented to his family members at the service. On Wednesday, Gibbons' father took, partook in a more private ritual. He drove up from Huntington to Arlington and asked the funeral director if he could open the coffin and spend some time with his son. Then once again, the father took out the torn dollar bill that he had given his son in 1991. Quote, I opened up his blazer and put it in his shirt pocket, he said, over his son's heart. Then he took the other half home with him, saving it for another undertaker at another time. Quote, when the day comes, the father said, I'll put it in my shirt pocket. We'll meet together. And we'll be one again. Wow. That is a powerful, powerful story. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the stories are like that in the book. I mean, the, the, the stories of courage and the stories of perseverance, but there's also great stories of love, you know. I, the stories, I like to say that, you know, the living can teach, the, or the dead can teach the living about life. The stories are stories that everybody can relate to. And no matter what someone's going through, whether it's cancer or whether it's a death in the family or whether it's some kind of difficulty or hardship they are facing, those stories resound back to you and how people are so resilient to the things that happen in their life and how they face those things. Um, yeah. Curtis, you had a question? Go ahead. Yeah. We all know that the, the Civil War was a tragic time in American history, but it was an important 
time and something I believe we should remember. Now, I'm sure there are plenty I'm sure there are plenty of cemeteries, national cemeteries, that have areas um, reserved for Confederate soldiers. What are your thoughts on heritage that is being erased and and Confederate statues that are being torn down? I mean, what what are they going to do next? Go into the national cemeteries and remove all the Confederate tombstones and graves? Well, I, I know of some cemeteries, uh, <clears throat> national cemeteries, have actually been vandalized, uh, but it hasn't really been affected to the, the Civil War people, but more to others, other periods of time. <coughs> My own personal opinion is that, you know, whether they were Union or whether they were Confederate, they were Americans. And after the Civil War, they had to make a sworn allegiance back to the United States government. But the thing is, is that a, a lot of those uh, statuary things were put up uh, well after the Civil War. Some of them were, were put up, I think, during the 50s, I think, or whatever. I'm not sure the periods of time when some of those were put up, and some of them were even put up before that, way before that. Um, a lot were put up in the 1800s uh, or the 1900s. But my feeling is this, is that I can understand how some people can can feel the way they feel. But that is part of our history. It's who we are. That's right. The good and the bad of who we are. You know, we, this country has always done good things and it has done bad things. And to think that we are above that is ridiculous. And to think that, that we can erase history, we can't. History is history. And if anything, we should study those people and study why they did what they did and learn instead of just defacing and, and destroying. And if they really feel that strongly about it, you know, they don't have they don't have to have them in a center for part of town if that that's what the people want, because it is about the people. It's always been about to put them somewhere where people can look at them and can study them and can learn from them. But destroying something, I mean, all your, you can't erase history. You can't erase what has happened. It is part of who we are. I mean, that's how I feel about it. You know, it, it is a shame that you know people have gone so much as, as far as to desecrate the graves because we had that in our own church uh, graveyard, and our church goes back to 1712. So as you walk out the front, you walk past all these graves, and you know, come on Memorial Day, you had Union flags placed on the Union soldiers, and the Confederate flag was placed on the Confederate soldier. They fought for what they felt was right, and they should both be equally honored. You know, well, and we majority had of the cemetery. Well, majority of those soldiers have been vandalized. I'm sorry. I'm, I was just majority of those Well, as I was going to say, is, is you know, a majority of the Confederate soldiers did not own slaves. They did not. Uh, they they were subsistence farmers. They didn't have what they called cash crops, cash crops being tobacco and being uh, uh, cotton. And so they were very poor, poor families. They, they grew subsistence uh, products like corn and wheat and, you know, vegetables, whatever. And they maybe had one mule. Uh, and, but that was, that was how they were – that was pretty much who they were. And so when the Civil War broke out, 
it was about protecting your own home more than anything else. Um, you know, they made it states' rights. And later on, it became about, you know, about slavery. And rightly so, because it was a stain on our society. But a lot of those people didn't have anything to do with slavery and they didn't care about it. They just felt like their home was being invaded. And that's kind of why they went to arms. Um, so, I mean, you have to look at history and you have to understand why people do what they do. You can't just go about, you know, chastising a whole whole race of people or a whole, you know, like the southern or the northern side, either one, because they all had their own personal reasons for joining or for not joining, you know. Um, that's kind of how, I mean, I, I mean, I feel about it. I, I want to tell you a story. I mean, we're, since we're talking about the Civil War, uh, I want to talk to you about a guy named uh, Sergeant James H. Harris. Now, James H. Harris is, is buried in a separate part of the, the park. He's buried with all the Confederates or with the, with the, the Union soldiers, but he was black, an African American, and there's buried on that property a thousand five hundred of them, and <clears throat> they're buried separately, those soldiers. But you see, he was 36 years old when he enlisted into the army, and he was from St. Mary's, Maryland, and he worked as a farmer. But when the word came that they were accepting black men <clears throat> to fight in the war, he didn't hesitate to join. He became a private in Company B of the 38th Regiment of the U.S. Colored Troops, and he was quickly promoted to sergeant two months after. And finally, they had their chance, the chance to show their medal, their purpose, on September 29th, because, you know, a lot of people didn't think the African Americans could fight. Well, they, they definitely proved them wrong. You see, the Confederates had entrenched themselves around Richmond, and just before dawn, about 3,000 of them had advanced with the, uh, the, the Union African-American soldiers. Their, de their division was behind some earthworks along the New Market Road as some 2,000 Texas Confederates fired down on them. Now, Colonel Duncan's brigade uh, charged first, but they could not penetrate the two lines and over the fallen trees and the debris that the Confederates had prepared. And Colonel Draper urged his men forward to attack. And they leaped over their own fallen brothers, and they charged forward under the constant infantry and artillery fire. They were cut down in half by the fire. I don't know if you know anything about canister fire, but canister fire was basically in a canister, but it was filled with either nails or with, with small balls and was used and shot like a cannon, like a, like a shotgun. And in doing so, it would wipe out a swath of 20 men at a time. Butchery. Uh, down and a half by the fire, and they spent 30 minutes pinned down. Now, Harris Harris knew that there had to be one last chance, and he yelled out to his men, says, this is it, boys. And with that, he rose up, and he charged forward, and they rushed the slopes, and they struggled forward over the bodies and the fallen trees and breached the defenses and engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Confederates. You see, it's one thing to take a gun and aim it and pull the trigger, but it's quite another to take a bayonet and put it into a man. They routed those Confederates at a cost. In just over an hour, 
they lost 50% of their fellow black brothers. That's 1,500 of them. And after the war, nine years later, they presented Mr. Harris and 14 other fellow soldiers with the Medal of Honor for the Battle of Chaffin Farm. Wow. That, that was a very you know courage story. courage no. to courage to charge forth amongst gunfire you know for a cause for a purpose for your brother you know yeah I can't I can't imagine that because I never faced it myself but I can honor them for doing what they did. Anyway. Yeah, when when James H. Harris, you know, made that charge, he did it with only two other men, uh, Private William H. Barnes and Sergeant Edward Ratcliffe. The three yep. of them were the ones that ran forward alone and went into hand-to-hand combat. And it was after that motion that the rest of the regiment of their division joined them in the battle, routing the Confederates. But also... Uh, James H. Harris was is specifically honored and memorialized by the United States Colored Troops Memorial Statue in Lexington Park, Maryland, in St. Mary's County, where he grew up and also worked as a farmer. The informational kiosk at the memorial mentions him specifically. So he is not going to be ever forgotten. And I just yeah, want to let you goodness. know, Ron, that as we talk about each one of these individuals on the um, – video podcast on Facebook and YouTube, and which will also go out to all the other uh, social networks, I have a picture playing of each individual as we talk about them, so people can actually oh, look great. at them, that's... not hear just about a person, but see the actual human being. So oh, that's great. <laughs> anything that's to great. put a little personal touch on it, it's so important. It's so important that we don't forget these men and women. You know, as I say, from the birth of our nation through today and these men and women that will go into the future to fight for these freedoms that we have that are so precious and so fragile unless we, ha- we protect them. And when That's the reason why they're out the there on the front line. Remember them. Exactly. But while they're out there on the front line doing the physical battle, we have to be here in the back lines doing the battle with the politicians that want to take away our freedoms through the back door. So that's why people like you, like Curtis, myself, those listening in, have to be vigilant. We can't let their sacrifices go, you know, without support. Freedom is and has always been fought for in this country by the blood of every generation. And it is very dear. And people need to value it because they try and take it away from us little by little. And the next thing you know, you have no freedoms whatsoever. No, and also, as uh, our our friend Vito in the uh, chat room points out, you know, if we're not careful, they will change the entire narrative and, ch- and challenge revisionist history. So we have to have the facts out there and say, no, this is not what happened. These are the facts. This is what our history is, and this is why we did what we did at that time. Well, you have to right? – I mean, as I say again, yeah, oh, I agree with you. Uh, and as I said again, you know, study some history. You really have to study history. I mean, today the word socialist uh, democracy is passed around. It is no such thing as socialism and democracy combined. They do not combine. 
More people have died under socialist regimes than any in the, in the world. You have Mao Zedong. You have Stalin. You have Adolf Hitler. You have Pol Pot. You have Castro. You know, you have other regimes. Tyrants will always take over to other tyrants. And, you know, we have to stand for the freedoms that we have. That's what makes us such a unique country. You know, that's what makes us such a unique country. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, our representative republic is not a democracy. And democracy is the next step towards socialism because it's mob rule. We have it by rule of law, which makes us a republic. Mm -hmm. And that's so important for people to understand. that When they throw out the word democracy... No, we're a representative it's republic, a dem- but we're allowing republic. it to become decayed. Yeah. And if we don't protect that republic, it'll decay, and we will fall into democracy and then fall into socialism and communism. And this is not what these men and women fought for. No, it isn't. It's not? No. I mean, we have uh, another person that you spoke about um, that you gave me her name, Rosemary Hogan. Yeah. And I could not... Imagine <laughs> women prisoners of war. I I remember there was used to be a TV show. I think it was a BBC show, or maybe an Australian. I'm not sure, but it was Tenko, uh, which was the call for you know falling into line in the Japanese prisoner of war camps. And this was not a pretty sight. These prisoner of war camps. Well, the Japanese were incredibly brutal. They were incredibly brutal because they thought of surrender as the lowest form of of you know. I mean. You're an animal at that point. You were not considered a human being. So, but the story is amazing in itself. I think you know, and the women that 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 nurse every day and take care of the soldiers. But this is is a a heart wrenching story, which shows the the strength of exposing women. Um. Colonel Rosemary Hogan was a World War II nurse, and she came from a small town in Oklahoma, and, and she joined the nursing corps in about 18, or 1936 and uh, found herself on the Philippines shortly before December 7th. Now, that's when all hell broke loose. And on that day, uh, around 819, the Japanese bombs started to fall, and they destroyed all the planes, and they left thousands of people dead. And the hospital was in pandemonium. Amputations and transfusions and deaths surrounded this woman. Uh, she was in charge of the nurses, and they worked through the night, doing as best as they could. She was the lead nurse in charge of the American and Filipino nurses. And when the order came by MacArthur to retreat to the jungles of Bataan Peninsula, she followed that order. And they made a makeshift. Uh, a, uh, they had a makeshift hospital ship, and. Uh, manned by the Army nurses, and, and uh, made, they made it out. Some of those made them out. The Army nurses made it out. And most of them, uh, the gravely ill, or the gravely injured, excuse me. But they had to stay behind. Uh, she had to stay behind and, and form an open-air battlefield hospital, which hadn't been done on, in, it was on Bataan, but it hadn't been done since the Civil War. Uh, they performed 187 major surgeries. In a 24-hour period, they fought malaria, they fought dysentery, there was no protection from mosquitoes and the flies that contaminated the food and the water. It got so bad for these guys 
that they were forced to eat the horses and water buffalo and even monkeys to survive. Uh, they were exhausted, and, but they kept on doing their duty and forced themselves onward. Eventually, the Japanese captured them, and they were imprisoned at San Tomo's prison in Manila. You see, what it really was is the Japanese had converted a university into an internment camp, and there the army and the Navy nurses that were left behind were kept along with the civilian population. And they did some incredible things for the, the civilians while they were there. They were called the Battling Bells of Bataan. A lot of people actually called, the press actually called them the Angels of Bataan. But Rosemary Hogan became one of those first four women to attain the rank of a full colonel. Now, what a lot of people don't know is in that, that time there, they performed everything from, from uh, childbirth to heart attacks and even a mastectomy on one of the nurses. They dealt with chicken pox, with diphtheria, tuberculosis, tuberculosis outbreak. The sutures they made from hemp and surgical instruments were boiled in Bunsen burners. They turned the rubber from the trees into a paste to hold the bandages in place. I mean, these women were so inventive. But the people were starving to death. As many as five a day were dying. And they were forced to, to live on 700 calories a day. They came to realize that life was more about courage than it is it was more about courage than to die and they watched their friends die and they knew it was only a matter of time for the rest of them fortunately the americans saved them uh at the last last moment and because the japanese were planning on doing a mass execution they had planned but see even after they were rescued by the americans those nurses took care of the wounded americans they felt as if it was their duty to take care of their own boys. She was awarded the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart. And as I said, she became one of the first four women in to attain the rank of full colonel. Well, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson really? said this. He said, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Uh, her story, in a way, is also kind of sad because, you know, she was there in 1941. She was captured in 41 by the Japanese um, shortly after they were evacuated and landed at Mendino Island. And she was not liberated until 1945 for four long years. She endured this. And then uh, after the war, she transferred to the Air Air Force Nurse Corps where she served as the chief nurse at Bowling Air Force Hospital in um, Biloxi, Mississippi. And she ended up marrying an, uh, an Air Force major, Arnold Luciano. And they retired in San Antonio, Texas. But she didn't get to really enjoy her retirement very long because she passed away in 1964, just 19 years after she was liberated. So you can imagine what her body went through, what all the other nurses went through, endured in those four long years in that in that uh, prison of war camp. Yeah, you know, just amazing things. I mean, I, I in fact I have another nurse story that's in the book, and she was 
she was trained at a Presbyterian hospital. And actually, one of her first patients that she took care of was Lou Gehrig. And then when D-Day happened, she, and along with a lot of bunch of other nurses, were the first ones to hit D-Day, were hit Normandy Beach, and took care of the soldiers there. She eventually actually uh, followed them on in and was there at uh, Dachau, I believe, uh, at the concentration camp. And she talked talked deeply about it and actually photographed it. the war affected her greatly in, in so much that she became an alcoholic, but she she got that under control. And when she passed, she ha- her photographs and some of the memorabilia are actually in the Holocaust Museum here. Wow. But she was, I mean, wow. some of these women are amazing, you know? I mean, and, from, and I, I have another one in the book from World War One, And the nurses, the nurses, you know, were the backbone too. They were there, you know? Even in the Civil War, they were on the battlefield, taking care of the men. You know. Uh, it, well, you also I, 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 in fact, I'm working war. right now, actually, about about the, the Civil War nurses, and and I'm finding that you know they, uh, you know, nurses were not used at all before the Civil War. It was all men, because it was considered not woman's work and not proper woman's work. Uh, but the women volunteered, and they they were shunned a lot of times uh, in the hospitals by the surgeons and all and uh, but there was such a need such a desperate need they had they broke down those barriers well there was also if you recall in the revolutionary war women did actually go onto the battlefield uh you had mm-hmm. uh, maggie corbin and deborah sampson matter of fact deborah sampson if i remember her story correctly actually dressed as a man and it wasn't until she was wounded did they realize that this was actually a woman? And oh yeah, a lot of actually a lot of the, the a lot of the Union and Confederate women did the same thing. Well, during the Revolutionary War, you know, when she was discharged from the military, she was due. Eventually, Congress awarded her and Maggie Corbin both, you know, a pension. But Paul Revere actually helped her live. He would give her money to help her continue to live until Congress was able to give her money. But uh, women have been on the battlefield. It's just not reported all that much. You think of war as being um, men only, but the women are out there also. Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, the story is just one. I mean, it's amazing. Man. It's the fortitude of the American spirit. There's so many amazing stories. I'm sorry? It's it's the fortitude of the American spirit. No. Yeah, we, I, uh, are, we are unique. Oh, we are unique, and that you know what—that's what I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I, I want. I want to end. Uh, you know, or I have in, the, in. I do speaking engagements, and I go around mm-hmm. to Rotary clubs, and I've gone around to. Actually, I just visited the uh, Hollywood uh, uh, American Legion post 43 out here. Uh, an incredible group of guys and women. Um, they have about a thousand there, but the, the night that I spoke, there was about 200 of them. But I go around and doing speaking engagements, and uh, usually the the last thing I I talk about is about the day we signed the Declaration of Independence. This is one of my favorite stories, and it's usually how a lot of times I will end things. And if it's okay by you, I if you want me to, I can I can read that to you. 
Well, let's go with uh, the next uh, person that you gave me. And uh, that was uh, oh, Captain Humbert Rocky Versace. That yeah, is a mouthful of a name. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell us about him. Well, Versace He's was a good-looking guy, too. Uh, he was a, a, a Medal of Honor recipient during the uh, Vietnam War. And he was a POW and actually was one of the first POWs to ever receive the Medal of Honor. There's only been two. Um, he's one of them um, that actually received the Medal of Honor for being a POW. Now, uh, he had gone to West Point in 1959 and uh, became a Green Beret. And he began his duty as an intelligence officer in Vietnam in the Mekong Delta. And while he was there during his duty, his heart went out to the orphan children that were left behind by the war, and, and he, was, he was accepted into the seminary. He wanted to return someday to Vietnam, and he wanted to work with the orphans. And by the end of his first tour, he decided to volunteer for another. Uh, two weeks before his time was up, and it was to bed and headed home. It was October 29th of 63. He was sent out on a, a South Vietnamese uh, patrol and was trying to take out a North Vietnamese command post and he volunteered for the job. But things didn't turn out too well. Uh, him and Lieutenant Nick Rowe and Sergeant Dan Peitzer were along with him and they, uh, they came into a village and under siege and covering fire so that, for the friendlies, so that the friendlies could withdraw and uh, they were hit and captured um, by bullets they were actually forced barefoot uh, to a prison camp deep within the jungle. And for two years, their homes were cages, bamboo cages, six feet long, two feet wide, and three feet high. They gave them little to eat and little protection against the elements. And sometimes they would even take the mosquito netting away. And so bad were the mosquitoes that they would swarm over them, that over their shackled feet that they'd look like they were wearing black socks. They were physically tortured, and they tried to persuade others to confess to the phony crimes to which the propaganda. But he held up. Four times he tried to escape, and the first time he crawled on his stomach and his legs were infected from the injuries and was unable to walk. They, you know, he he tried to give them the information on the... the, uh, Geneva Convention. He cited the treaty and the chapter and the verse over and over again to him because he spoke fluent English and French and Vietnamese. <laughs> Many a time he told him to go to hell. <laughs> now, uh, the thing that makes him amazing is that they, they couldn't break this guy. They would oftentimes take him around and they couldn't break his spirit. He had an unshakable faith in God. And they gave him the inner strength to endure. And they would lead him around in the area with a rope around his neck and his hands tied and barefooted. His head swollen and his skin had turned yellow from the jaundice. And even his hair had turned white. But they couldn't break his spirit. The local rice farmers who were trying to who they were, they were trying to impress were more surprised by his strength of character and his unwavering devotion to God and country. War kind of a of physical difficulty upon him. And he often smiled and 
and talk about God and country. Eventually, the Viet Cong stopped using French and Vietnamese in their indoctrination sessions because they didn't want the centuries or the villagers to listen to the rebuttals of the propaganda. But they regained to realize that they couldn't break him. And finally, the Viet Cong separated him from the other prisoners on September 26, 1965. And the last thing the rest of the POWs heard as they were marching him off into the jungle was that his voice was singing at the top of his lungs, God bless America. He was only 27 years old. Well, at the um, at the uh, presentation, the Medal of Honor, you know, posthumously by uh, President Bush, um, a friend of his, Joe Flynn, suggested as they end the ceremony, that is how they end the ceremony, by singing God Bless America. Yeah. song takes on a whole other meaning now. Whew. Try not to cry here, guys, but the stories are so powerful, and the book is absolutely wonderful, the Arlington Anthology. And letting you know, Ron, that in the show description, I have a link to the book there. So when people listen to the podcast or view the video podcast later on, as they're listening or watching, they can click on it and go to Amazon to get your book. So hopefully oh, they get some more new fans. Oh, well, you know, I just want people I to just, know what people have done, you know. I mean, as I said before, you know, we keep them alive by telling their story and remembering them and what they did for us. Yes, that's, that we do. That we do. And, you know, the story about the signing of the Declaration of Independence is also a fascinating one. Um, it took a long time for it to be written to the point where Jefferson had his sequester himself uh, to write it. John Adams took him aside and says, you're sitting down, you're writing this, and then we're going to work on it from there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, this is kind of an actually, the, the, what I'm going to read to you is actually a, a, uh, a legend about that day that they signed the Declaration of Independence. But it's one of my favorite stories in the book. Um, and it kind of goes like this. It's called Independence. What divine inspiration ignited the creation of this great nation? What made those who believed in freedom to rise and the sound and the call when all the odds seemed against them? What ignited the heart and the mind to pin those words of independence upon that parchment? And what of the brave men who placed all on that document declare men's inalienable right to life and liberty? Our freedom is and has always been fought for in the blood by every generation that has come before. But still the words of those few brave men place their names echo throughout the world. There is a legend about that day that we gave birth to a nation in that little hall in Philadelphia, a day in which a debate had raged for hours. These honorable men were gathered hard-pressed by a king who flouted the laws that they were so willingly to obey. But even so, to sign the Declaration of Independence was an act so irretrievable that the words treason, the gallows, and the headsman's axe made the issue remain in doubt. It was at this point, so the legend says, that a common man from the back of the hall rose. He was not a young man, but one who was later described as being summoned by an energy for his impassioned plea. He cited the grievances that had brought them to that moment in time, and finally his voice changed, falling 
yet strong, he said these words. They may turn every tree into a gallows. They may turn every hole into a grave. And yea, the words of that parchment can never die. To the soldier in the field, they will speak hope, and to the slave in the mine, freedom. Sign that parchment, gentlemen. Sign as if the next moment that noose is around your neck. For that parchment will be the textbook of freedom, the Bible for the rights of man forever. That he sat down. As the 56 delegates rose, they were swept up by his eloquence. They rushed forward to sign that document destined to be as immortal as any work of man can make. And when they turned to thank that man for his timely oratory, he was nowhere to be found, nor could anyone be found who knew him or how he came in the locked doors that were guarded. Some of those men, like many, gave their lives in that war that followed, and most gave their fortunes for all pledged their sacred honor to those words. But what manner of men were they? Twenty-four were lawyers, Eleven were merchants and tradesmen. Nine were farmers. They were all soft-spoken men's means who valued freedom more than their own lives, told to these men and their sacrifices for those words that they believed in. And how sad it is that most of us do not even know their name. To many, there's just a signature on a piece of parchment, these soldiers of freedom. John Hart was driven from the side of his desperately ill wife, and for more than a year, he lived in the forest in the caves before he was able to return home to find his wife dead, his children gone, his property destroyed, and he died of a broken heart. Carter Baxton of Virginia lost all of his ships, sold his home to pay his debts, and the man died in rags. And so it was with Clymer and Hall and Eller and Gwinnett, and Walton, and Rutledge, and Livingston, and Morris, and Middleton. They sired this nation's bloodlines that run from every nation and every part of this world. Oh, there have been revolutions since, but they usually trade one tyrant for another, don't they? But ours, ours established a new type of government. For the people, by the people, one nation, under God. Let us not forget the sacrifices that so many have gone before us have laid down so willingly for those words. Ron. It's, it's amazing. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, being a historian, if you were cornered by a ninth grader and they asked you to list you thought or who you thought were the five greatest Americans, Names and why? Say that again. I, I I couldn't understand what you said. If you were cornered by a ninth grader who asked uh-huh. you to list from your perspective, perspective, who were the greatest five United States presidents, who would you list and why? Well, you know, first off, we have to look at Washington. And I say that for the simple reason is that in the formation of this country, he did not want to be called uh, your grace. He did not want to be called Mr. President. And at the end of his term, he willingly gave up that office. Well, he could have hung on, and a lot of people would have wanted him to hang on. 
but he willingly gave up that office. He held those men together in that so fragile of, of union and made the country what it was today in the beginning. And the second greatest president, I have to think, is Lincoln. As a lot of people would think otherwise about Lincoln, and a lot of people on the union side actually did think ill thoughts about Lincoln. But he did hold the country together by doing some things that were kind of illegal in those days and still are. But he did it for the betterment of the union. He held the country together amongst the massive amounts of loss of life. And Lincoln often said that it was the loss of life and all that blood that was paying for the blood that had been spilled upon the slaves. Now, we've had a lot of great presidents, and we've had a lot of stinkers, too. But the thing is, is that we pick them. We, the people. Every time we go to the voting booth, we pick them. And it's up to us to make the right choices. It is up to us to learn the facts before we punch that button. There's going to be more presidents that will be good presidents, and there will be more presidents that will be bad presidents. That's just the way history has always been. But we have to hold on to is the rights that were given to us by those forefathers, those freedoms that were given to us by those forefathers, and starts to hold on to those because that is the foundation of who we are and what has made this country great for so many people. I've always said that you want... Pardon? I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to state that, you know, if you really want people to really pay attention to the the elections, why don't you have them pay their income taxes the day before you vote? Make that your tax day. <laughs> Move it from April 15th to the Monday, that first Monday in November, and after you sent that check out to the IRS and curse the bloody blue storm up, then go out and vote. It's an interesting concept. I never really thought about that. It is an interesting concept. <laughs> now, Chris, you were asking about his opinion on <laughs> it's the best way to get get our country back in order because if you're sending that check into Uncle Sam, you know, you want to know where your dollars are going and you want that check to be as small as possible too. <laughs> so yeah. Make make tax yeah, day the day before you vote. Yeah. Go ahead, Curtis. I was gonna ask him his opinion of um, Thomas Jefferson and his role um in the creation of this great republic. Uh, Jefferson was an amazing man. He was an incredibly intelligent, you know, gentleman also. Not only being invented, but, you know, he was an architect. Did we lose Ron? Could we just lose Ron? Ron? You still there with us? Well, Curtis, I think he dropped off. uh, I think so. I think his call dropped off. We'll see if he tries to dial back in. But anyway, we're down to our last about 10 minutes onto the show. Jeez, everything is going so fast today. Yeah, Ron has dropped off. Hopefully he'll call back in. But anyway, you know, Jefferson, I like a lot also. You know, as he was saying, he's an extremely intelligent man. He was an architect. He was a scientist. He was a, a writer, uh, a painter, a farmer. Um, yes, he did own slaves, but you have to look at the time period. And... 
he did free them. See, people don't you know, take that into consideration. They judge everything by the way things are now. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. You know, if it wasn't for him, we probably wouldn't have the Declaration of Independence because it was his his words. You know, you think about and you know, that. We wouldn't be where we are without him. The most, yeah, what amazes me the most about Jefferson is his age. I mean, he was like in his early 30s when he did a lot of this, this stuff, you know. And that's, that's a young age to be so wise. It is. It is. Well, then again, the classical education they were receiving is far superior to the education we receive today. I guarantee if you walk outside and you ask anyone, <laughs> what are the five five rights that are granted you in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights? And they cannot tell you. And Ron has called back in. Ron, you were, <laughs> we got you as far as he was an intelligent man, and then you dropped off. <laughs> oh, I don't know what happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got an Obama phone? <laughs> Ooh. No, no. Wow. <laughs> it's okay. I, mean, I I didn't vote for him, but I mean, you know, I, I'm just trying to be, you know, I don't like to, I don't like to put those kind of, you know, it's not about politics to me. It really isn't. You know, why I wrote the book, it's because I want people to know you know, what others have done. I mean, it's not about one side or the other. That's people's own opinions, and they can make that kind of opinion. And that's what makes us so great. We all have opinions. And, but it's the history of those people and what they've done, you know, in their lifetimes that make this country what it is. They've, they've changed this country. They've formatted. As I say to in a lot of my speaking engagements, you know, we're placed on this earth and we are given the opportunity to touch those and make a difference, to do, to do good things and, 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 and touch each individual's lives as we pass this. You know, that's, that's part of our job, you know, as not only as Americans, but as individuals to, to make it a better place. Anyway. Oh. Well, I want to thank you for being with us, uh, Ron, because we had so much fun with you and with our previous guest, Bruce Nathan. And your book is The Arlington Anthology, and hopefully out soon, the second part to that, with more wonderful stories about our heroes buried in Arlington Cemetery. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I, I, I want to thank you greatly for having me on the show. It's it's an honor to be able to tell the stories to you all. Um, and um, I just want to thank uh, to all the listeners that, that end up picking up a book. I, I want you to also know that everyone who does pick up a book, uh, a portion of the proceeds which are uh, from the book uh, are donated uh, to the veterans. So, um just to let you folks know about that. I don't know if I ever said anything about it, but they are. Oh, thank you. Thank you so very much. And it has been a pleasure to have you. And we'll have you back on soon, as soon as you get the next book out. I'm we'll putting you on the line here now. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you all, all right, have a blessed care, day Ron. today. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. All right. Ron MacDonald, uh, check out his book, The Arlington 
anthology. And we're going to take just a short break and push again for a little earth water. So here we go. Well, if I can hit the play button, hit the right button. Listen, guys, I, listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? So if so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? Every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom, you just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my web page. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com. They offer four tiers for affiliates, from one case to 16 cases. I bought four cases to start, and boy, am I hooked on the water. Simply go to my webpage, click on the Earth Water link on the page, and join Team Earth Water. Go to Southern Sense and become a member of my site, and you'll also be entered to win the latest book offer if you become a member of my site. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Check it out. I know you'll be pleased. Curtis, um, we're going to end the show a little bit differently. Um, Instead of playing our theme tune, uh, a friend of mine, Jim Simpson, we've had him on the show here a couple of times, um, wrote this little, little prayer here. It's Memorial Day prayer. And he sent it to the Pockets of Resistance Memorial Day Devotion. So I want to end the show uh, with this prayer, um, if you don't mind. Oh, no, not at all. I was just going to say that um, Friday we're going to have um, Virginia Fuller and Don Brockett as our guest. Exactly. And, uh, oh, that's going to be a fun show because what you learn about the Supreme Court is going to get you angry. His book is excellent, and we'll be talking about that on Friday. But from Jim Simpson, um, I want to thank him for sending this to us, and it reads, Dear God, I pray for the fallen, those brave souls who gave their all for our country, never flinching from their duty, whatever they were called to do, and whether the leadership decisions that brought them to their last mission were well-considered or not. They have given all they had without question. But I pray especially for the fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, sisters and brothers of these fallen princes and princesses, for they have to live on without, and doubtless would have 
taken their place without question, even if only to save themselves from such unbearable pain. Nothing can compare to the suffering endured by a mother who loses her child or a child who loses his mother or father before their time. The fallen sacrifice their lives. The family sacrifices the rest of their lives. They will never see what their beloved life could have become. We'll no more share life's trials and triumphs with them. Never again see their smile or share their warmth on a cold winter's night. They live in a sea of grief and will carry that wound for eternity. So please, God, bestow your tenderness and grace, especially on these families whose loss can never be repaid. But God, I pray also for the rest of us, for we lose too. We lose what could have been from among the most selfless, principled, promising souls of our living generations. I would gladly exchange any 10 Harvard graduates for one serviceman or woman who willingly walks at the knife point. They have more guts, more integrity, more fortitude, and likely more resourcefulness than the lot of them combined. So God, please let not their ultimate sacrifice be in in vain. See to it that the objectives they will deploy to obtain are achieved. See to it that we have the satisfaction of realizing their missions successfully concluded. God preserves this country for which they gave their lives and give us all the wisdom, humility, and virtue to fully comprehend and gratefully acknowledge their sacrifices for what they are. For greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. John fifteen thirteen, Amen. Today's show has been dedicated to all of our brave men and women out there that have fallen in members of Memorial Day. We will be back here on Friday, and I hope to see you then. We close with taps, and I say good night and God bless. <laughs>